Let's start in Matthew chapter 4, beginning verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Well, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, a third time now, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Lord, we are grateful just for your son this morning that we would not be here, Lord, if it wasn't for who you are and what you have done in our lives. Lord, we often... We profess a lot of things in your name and in your image. We do. Lord, we deeply desire to know you, and we do this because we deeply desire others to know you. Lord, we, we want people to be able to say, look, this is, this is part of who God is. Especially, Lord, when we, people, we see people who are, you know, in times of, of suffering or in times of brokenness or just struggling, Lord, like to to be sitting there filled with your spirit, there is something in us that cries out saying, like, we want to go there. And we want to be with others, Lord. And, and we're going to see today that that is, that is deeply of you. But Father, guide us. For just as John and was leading us in singing, Lord, we, we aren't enough. We need you to be with us. Father, we need your spirit to guide us. But Lord, when your spirit guides us, we, we don't have to move about timidly. Lord, if we check ourselves and we see the spirit there, we can go and we can trust you. We know who you are and the work that you are about. So Father, may we see this this morning from Matthew 4 and just be encouraged, Lord, as we build to Easter to celebrating the life that you have brought, Lord, that we get to see a little glimpse of this today in Matthew 4. 
It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So guys, in Matthew 4, it starts with a passage some of you guys may be more familiar with. Right? We've probably heard someone talk about the time that Jesus spends in the wilderness being tempted by the devil at some point. And, and Matthew records this kind of right at a crucial spot. So keep this in the back of your heads. I'll, we'll call it out into the light later. But just keep in the back of your heads right now. The very last thing that has happened right before this is Jesus has now been baptized by the Holy Spirit. So keep that in the back of your heads, okay? Because we're, we're going to circle back around to this. But now that Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's at this point. It wasn't before then. Once the Spirit comes, now Matthew shows, okay, now Jesus has what he needs. Now Jesus has been fully equipped, you would say, to go and minister, to go and be this redeemer and this king that Matthew has been showing. Hey, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. Now that Jesus has the spirit, now we can see what he does. And the first big part of our main point this morning is that he, what he does is he knows and he trusts in who God is. If you look at the first three verses of Matthew 4, Matthew describes how Jesus is tempted by the devil. It's a Greek word there, pedrazo, which I always butcher the Greek, but it, it almost I said pizza a couple times in my practice. It's not pizza, but it sounds like it. And it simply means to try or test for the purpose of determining the quality of something or someone. Essentially, it's saying, if you put something under a test, what's it going to do? That, that verb kind of implies, you know, when talk about making diamonds when you squeeze something with pressure what comes out of it that's that's the language that's being used here so now that Jesus is filled with the spirit we see that Jesus is now led by the spirit to be in a place where he's going to be pressed he's going to be tempted he he's going to be tested so that what comes out is what the spirit is actually desiring to do what is God trying to work through Jesus very important to get that that is the beginning of all of this, right? So then the, the tempter, the devil, the one who's coming to accuse Jesus shows up in verse three and three different times, I love this, he comes back to the Old Testament and says, okay, Jesus, let's, let's see how well you know your scriptures. And he says, okay, Jesus, three things I'm gonna tempt you with. He says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. The second, throw yourself down. And the third, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you worship me. Now, it's, it's a theme we've talked about a lot. But do you guys remember back in Exodus and back in Hebrews when we were talking about what does sin look like? You know, what, what are we pursuing if we are in sin, if we're in brokenness? And we've said it's, it usually looks like one of three things. It's either going after power, going after production, or going after self. That if we're not pursuing God, typically one of those three things sits at what are we really trying to get after? We either need to get ourselves in control of something. We either need to figure out the right thing to do or just ourselves, right? Like we are the ones saying, well, whatever I think is good, that's, that's what I'm going to run with, okay? One of those three things. And it's interesting that right here in Matthew 4, Satan shows up to tempt Jesus, to test Jesus, and he says, let's see, if we, we put a little pressure on this guy, is it the spirit that's going to come out, or is it one of these three things that we've seen all throughout Scripture? Is it, Jesus, turn stones into bread, produce something, 
to show who you are? Is it jump and have the angels catch you? Let yourself prove who you are. Is it worship me? I'll give you power. I'll give you all this, Jesus. Is it power? Like, which one of these is Jesus really after? And every single time Jesus says, oh, I'm not falling for this, right? This is not what I'm pursuing. This is not what it looks like to be in my ministry. This is not what I'm after. Verse 4, he's not tempted by production. In fact, he turns around and he quotes another place of the Old Testament to show, let, let me show you what that passage really means, Satan. He says, look, I'm not defined you and I are not defined by what we can or cannot do. We are defined by what the Spirit does through us. Man is not living by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 7, Jesus is not tempted by self. He said, I don't have to go do something to prove to you who I am. That's, that's, not, that's not part of this. He says, we are defined by the image of God that is already within us. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, says you're not just testing me, you're testing the one whose image I bear. I have nothing to prove because I have his image over me. Verse 10, the last one says, be gone. Satan, Jesus is not tempted by power. He says, you, you don't have to tell me that God has somehow lost his authority. You don't, you don't have to tell me that, oh, because of what you're trying to tell me to do, Satan, that all of this is under chaos and I need to take it back. No, God, you have not lost your place you have not lost your power jesus says you don't get get away from me the, the worship the lord your god him alone shall you serve he has his place and i love church in these and there's back and forth between satan and jesus we see jesus saying i know who i am I know the image of the one who has sent me. I know the work he has been about. And not only does Jesus say he knows this, but now he also tells Satan, you can't even come against me saying, well, don't, don't even tell me that there's something else I need, right? Like, I know who my God is. I know the image of the one I came to bear. I'm good, right? Which is both knowing something, but also trusting it. Because it takes a lot of trust to be able to say, no, I really don't need something else. I really don't need that. Quick example, whenever Easter comes around, there's a wonderful candy that comes out. Um, I'm not talking about Peeves, but Cadbury eggs. Um, I don't know if you're like me, you are a sucker for Cadbury eggs, especially if I had to pick one, I would pick the cream ones. But Abigail likes the caramel, so then we just, we have to buy both because they don't sell them in the same pack. So whenever we go to the store, they're almost always on sale, which doesn't help. But you, you just, you know, okay, to have one or two Cadbury eggs, not a big deal. To have four or five packs of Cadbury eggs in the house is a big deal. But there's a difference between knowing, okay, I could be satisfied with one or two and actually trusting that I can be satisfied with one or two. Because everything in me says, nah, I feel like I really need three or four packs of these. So, I mean, it's, I'm proud of myself that this morning I can tell you I've only had one pack of each in the house. And we're almost on Easter, so we're, we're doing pretty good. But knowing and trusting have to be held together. To just know, okay, well, I only need one or two, doesn't necessarily 
encourage me in moments where I'm like, but I haven't eaten today. There's a lot of other stuff in the cart. By the time I get home and we cook it, it's going to be another hour. I need to eat something now. Right there is the Cadbury egg, right? Knowledge doesn't always just lead us to just trust something. These two are held together. This is why James tells us in chapter 1, verse 23 of his letter, he says, look, if you know something, if you look at a mirror and see something, or well, I'm, I'm butchering the paraphrase, James tells us if you know something and not trust it, it's like looking in a mirror and seeing your face and then you turn away from the mirror and you immediately forget what you look like. James says if you don't hold these two things together, knowing something and actually trusting it to live it out, James says it's, it's like you've forgotten it to begin with. The, the, the knowledge does no good. So Jesus, it shows us here, church, when, when we think about ministering to others, when we think about what our church's ministry looks like, it, it has this rhythm to it of we both have to know who God is, but we also have to trust in who God is. So there's, there's times where we're, you know, we're getting knowledge and we're getting to see like, oh, this is something about God I didn't know. Or, man, I never thought about seeing God there. But then there's also times of going to practice it, to say, okay, if I trust this to be true, then the next time I'm stuck in a financial crisis, and if I know and I've seen how God provides, then I'm, I'm not going to freak out as bad this time. Or if I know that God has always blessed us and blessed our family, then maybe I will look to say, okay, now instead of holding on to this bounty for myself, who around me could I share this with? Right? There's, there's a knowing and a trusting to what Jesus does. And so that's, that is an essential part of the picture of the ministry we see this morning, knowing and trusting who God is. But as he does this, he doesn't just go do whatever he wants with the knowledge and the trust. Jesus actually shows us two in here. Right after he's tempted, the angels come, they minister to him, verse 11. Kind of this, almost like this, you know, God saying, okay, good. Right? You have now proven that what is on the inside, the Holy Spirit has now shown itself to actually be in there. Now what do we do with this? The two chunks of scripture that come right out of that, verses 12 and 17, and then 18 through 22, they both show the same thing, that Jesus now goes to bring life to others by being with them. If you look at verses 12 through 16, you see Matthew starts recording how John the Baptist was arrested by Herod, right? This is the same Herod from chapter 2, same guy that we're seeing. So Jesus leaves Nazareth to get a little bit further out from Herod, and he goes to the town of Capernaum. And then Matthew, like we've talked about, Matthew who loves to pull back the Old Testament and say, look, look at how this was pointing to Jesus. He says in verse 15 and 16, there's a prophecy from Isaiah that's fulfilled when Jesus goes out to Capernaum. It says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus actually in doing this is showing everybody, okay, Jesus has now come for everybody, right? That God, he's looking to bring Israel, right, his people back into right relationship with him, but he's also coming for the rest of the world, right? He desires all of us, you and I today, to be made right with him. So Jesus, it's a pretty big deal. We don't often think about 
moving cities is symbolic for something else. But Matthew says, don't miss what Jesus is doing. And what does he bring? What does he bring to the Gentiles? He says, they have now seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of death, on them a light has dawned. There's a really cool parallel all throughout Scripture, but especially in the Old Testament, between light and life. Now, whenever light shows up, there's life. And you think about what, is, what does light do, right? Light shines in darkness. It's, it's hard to hide when you're in a room like this because of all the lights that are on. Now, if we turn the lights off, we wouldn't be able to see one another, right? But with the lights on, it illuminates everything that's around. Light also brings clarity, right? When you can see, now you kind of actually know what you're trying to do. If you've ever tried to work on something outside, you know, I have friends who love to do work on their own cars. But they have to do it before the sun goes down. Because you just, you can't see what you're working on. There's no light. But light brings clarity. Light also, I was thinking about it this week, light brings peace. I don't know how many times I have walked into a room in our house. But it does not matter how many times I walk into the room. If you walk in and the light is off, your heart rate starts to go up just the slightest because it's dark, right? Something could be there. You've walked into your house a million times, and there's never been anything out of the ordinary. But there could be. There's that little bit of heart rate that goes up, but it, you know what calms you down? You turn on the light. So light, it brings clarity, it brings peace, and uh, it, it just, it brings healing. Uh, one of my, my favorite quotes from my mom is she used to tell my brother and I, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Just when, the, when it gets dark, then, uh, you know, then, then we don't have the light. It, it, so it's powerful that here we're seeing Matthew record something from the Old Testament, something from Isaiah showing this is who Jesus was, right? He brought light. He brought life to us. But the way he does it, the way he does it also matters. Verse 17, so how does Jesus bring this life? He begins to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when he shows up, verse 19, and he calls these first couple of men to be his disciples, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Not to re rehash everything from last week, but that phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We talked about that. And it, it gives us this idea of Jesus showing up and saying, come be with me. I will make you into the image of the God you are made to bear. And in doing so, I will I'll call you righteous, right? I will free you from sin. What we would say in our modern church language, say I will save you from your sin. And the, the call to the disciples is the exact same thing. Follow me. Right, The call to new life with God through Christ. I will make you. I'm going to be changing you. I'm going to be working on you. Fishers of men. Not just making you into something to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to make you into something so you can get back out in the boat and go fishing. Kind of sounds like we both need to know something because I'm going to be changed. I'm going to be transformed. But I also need to learn to trust it because I'm being sent out. I'm being called. I'm being equipped for something. Church, it's a relational picture that is taking place here that as Jesus comes to bring life to others, it meant he had to go be with them. And I was, 
I was working through this section this week, and I was like, how have we, you know, seen this to be true? And I realized, for most of us, because this illustration wouldn't work if we were in Charlottesville, but those of us who are here who cheer for Virginia Tech have actually kind of seen this play out, whether we realized it or not, and what Coach Pry has been doing with the football team. Um, and I don't know how closely you follow football. This has just been something that, you know, I, I have done for most of my life. But one of the things that, that the coach has done recently is he's traveled or he sent his staff out to different regions of the state to go to pretty much every high school in the state to say, hey, we want to know who the coaches are. We want to know who the players are. And as we get to know them, we want them to get to know Virginia Tech, right? Now, that strategy did not directly translate to wins or losses last year. If you've followed the team, they won three games last year. So going out with a foundation of building relationships with one another, that did not necessarily correlate to immediate growth, immediate, what you, would, what you and I would probably call success, right? But what it did is it made everybody go, you know what, that's a place where I'm now known. That's a place where I'm now trusted. And listening to some of the things recruits have said coming out of it, they said, we didn't choose to go to Virginia Tech because they were an amazing program. They won three games last year, right? That's not that impressive. But we chose to go there because that was a place where we felt known, we felt trusted, and we felt like we could do something there. Church, it's, it is something that kind of feels intuitive, but it's, it's something that we rarely have the patience or the maturity to really work through in our lives today, right? That, that if we want to see real, lasting change take place in our lives or in somebody else's life, it requires relationship. Right? We have to go be with people if we want to get to, you know, if they would want to receive ministry from us, we have to go be with them. And so Jesus, in this knowing and this trusting that he set forth, it's not passive. It is not a, oh, well, I just sit here and then I know and then I get a test and I go be trusted. Yes, that does happen. But knowing and trusting is a very active work because it requires us, as we're seeing with Christ, to go be with people. So you think about the places that God has really put on your heart to say, like, man, I really wish I could see change there, right? It is possible if we go be with the people we want to see God's work in, right? Sitting back on the sidelines and firing things over does nothing. Jesus shows us if we go be with people, go be with the places that we wish to see come to know God. God look, I mean, this is right here, church. Jesus says, come be with me. I will make you. I will do the work. I will change. I will restore. I will heal. I will redeem. Every, every bit of this is wrapped up in Christ's ministry. Church, it is in our presence with others that brings life. It's, a, it's often one of the job descriptions uh, of a pastor. And it was one that, you know, in the previous church we worked at, we saw it, it meant a lot that pastors make visits. Um, for some people, it's uncomfortable when the pastor shows up. Because usually when the pastor shows up, you're either in the hospital or things aren't going great. So some people are like, oh, no, pastor, please, I'm not that bad. Just go visit somebody else, right? But it's, it's in the job description of pastors for most churches to go make visits, not because we can fix things, 
right? I don't go visit someone in the hospital because I have a medical background and I'm going to be able to control an IV. I, I, don't, I don't have any of that. What I can do is I can pray with people, which we don't overlook the power there. But what we are seeing in Christ's ministry is if we want to see change, and not just change for us, church, but if we see brokenness somewhere and we just want people to be reconciled, people to be redeemed, we go. And we go be with them. And we do trust, church, in our going and being that does our God not say, and this is exactly what you do. This is exactly what this looks like. Church, I want to read to you one example of this. One example of this from the Old Testament. From 1 Kings. Because as we're thinking about application this morning, the first bit of application I had for us was that we have to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'll kind of set this up for you, and then we'll read a little bit out of 1 Kings 19. But remember that bit from the beginning I told you to hold on to. How did Jesus do this, right? How did he know who God was? How did he trust who God was? How did he know that when he showed up somewhere, he knew exactly what to do to bring life to others? How did he know this? In Matthew 3, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Matthew 4, the Holy Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness. And, and sometimes we're like, that, that just seems like an odd detail. Or we completely read over it, right? Why the wilderness? It shows us something about the way the Holy Spirit works with us. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 19. If we are a church that needs to learn to listen and know the power of the Holy Spirit, what does it look like? 1 Kings 19. Elijah is fleeing from the, the wicked queen Jezebel, right? Everyone in the city wants Elijah dead because he's been the only prophet that is standing saying something other than what the, uh, the leadership of the, the city, the leadership of the people wanted to be said. And Elijah is afraid for his life. He sees the brokenness around him. He's trying to still reach out to the people. He loves the people, but they're all looking to kill him. So Elijah has no clue what to do. He goes and he flees to a cave. And we pick him up there in verse 9. It says, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He says, God, I have been doing my best to live for you. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. He says, I have seen, Lord, how your image bears, your people, my friends, my neighbors, they're struggling. They need you, God. There's brokenness that they're struggling with. There's brokenness I'm struggling with. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah says, I'm wearing out, God. Like, I, I don't know what to do. I see brokenness in other people, and I want them to know Christ. I, I don't know what to do with this. And God responds. Verse 11, he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. God says, okay, I hear you. I will show you what to do. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not. In the wind. And after the earth, the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. 
right? All these things that would demonstrate, man, if, if I'm in Elijah's place and I see God just level a mountain, you don't, you don't think that provides you a little bit of encouragement to go back and to the, to the people around you that want you dead and say, hey, uh, listen to what I have to say, but be careful uh, because you remember where that mountain used to be? Uh, yes, uh, my God is responsible for that, right? Like, we, we would say, okay, look at that very visible display of power. Um, you may want to listen to what I have to say. That's, that's what I would be like if I was in Elijah's shoes. And yet, it's not in the wind. It's not in the earthquake. It's not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Some of your translations may say a still, small voice. Mine has a footnote down at the bottom, a, a sound, a thin silence. Verse 13, and when Elijah hears this, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, it's a, this voice, there comes another voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Here's God. Right? Here's the spirit of the Lord. Here is God saying, what are we going to do, Elijah? Elijah repeats, verses 14, what he's feeling to the Lord. If you look at verse 15, 16, 17, and on down, God gives him very specific instructions. says, here I am. Now that you have my spirit, here's what we're going to go do. Guys, when we think about the work of the Spirit today, one of my fears is that when we live in a world that seems to be controlled by loudness, we just want to be louder. And we say, if we, if we, you know, the group with the most noise wins, right? I mean, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. That's sometimes how we are with our kids, right? When they come and they're yelling and they're arguing, doesn't it feel, it feels good to walk into the room and yell over them. To say, let me establish my authority in this matter because I can, I can be louder than, than both of the two of them. As they grow, that's probably not always going to be the case. But it's what we want to do. But when the Holy Spirit comes to Elijah, it is in the still small voice. It is not in this wind, this earthquake, this fire. When the Spirit shows up to show Jesus this is who God is, this is what he does, he takes him away to the wilderness. Because you know what's there? Nothing. Nothing. So we actually can hear what the Spirit of God is trying to say, is trying to do. It, it is... One of the things I'm probably most nervous about as a pastor is just knowing that I am capable of becoming so busy that I can miss the Spirit. Not saying that busyness means you are not listening to the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm not trying to boil it down that much. But church, if we are to minister as Christ did, we see here, we need to learn to listen to the Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit within us. That's what enabled Jesus to be able to tell the devil, what you are saying may sound good and may sound true, but here's why I know that's not the case. It gave him the confidence to say, because I know who God is, I feel good about this. 
And what Jesus did, church, is a very active work. When the Spirit shows up and it fills Christ, and he learns to say, this is of the Holy Spirit, what does Jesus do? He goes. He goes. So we listen to the Spirit, but the second thing we do, church, we heal. We heal the brokenness of others. Just as Elijah was sent by God, as soon as he heard the Spirit, he was sent to go do right, to go be with the people that were coming after him. He gives them a very detailed list, right? For those of you who love lists, Elijah got one, right? God did not say, just go to here and I'll show you the next step. God said, now that you're with me, Elijah, and you're listening to my voice, we do A, we do B, we do C, go. Don't worry about it. Trust this. Jesus, the same thing. As he passes these tests, as he is listening to the Spirit, he shows up and he moves around, knowing that people are out to get him, right? Knowing that if people are after John the Baptist, it's not too long before they're coming after Jesus. Jesus begins his ministry. He doesn't shy away knowing the, the, the frustration and the oppression that's out there. No, he starts his ministry from that moment. He starts because now he has the Spirit. The first two things he calls us to do, go be with people to bring life to them. If we are filled with the Spirit, church, you know, carrying out this analogy of the fishers of men, it's like you have all the best fishing equipment in the world to include the most beautiful boat. And you've got a lake in front of you with all the best and fattest fish. And you do nothing with it if we are not listening to the Spirit. So church, be encouraged today. Look, for some of you, we wrestle with different pieces of this. Some of us, we, we don't, we've never tried to listen to the Spirit. Right? We pray, and we hope, okay, God, maybe you'll take care of that. Uh, but, but sometimes we're like, hey, man, but does God really actually tell me to do something? Like, does God actually ever show me what he may desire of me to do in something? And maybe he's not giving me the laundry list like he's giving Elijah, but does he even give me the inclination to say, hey, go, go visit that person today and see what I'll do there, right? Some of us don't even take that first step. So for, for you and I, maybe that's where we start. Maybe we have to learn to say, okay, God, you know what? Like, I know you well. I know, I've, I've learned about God the Father. I've learned about God the Son, but I really don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit over here. Maybe that first step is us saying, okay, Father, teach me to listen to your Spirit. But for some of us, and, and I love church that I, I hear in you guys when you talk about, you know, things that you feel that God has put on your heart. Things that God has shown you to be true just in ways that you knew definitely came from him and not from anybody else. If we are knowing and trusting and we're hearing the spirit, be encouraged, be free to go, church. To go be with people, to go bring bro healing to brokenness, to go minister reconciliation, church. Like That is the work that Jesus does. So if we are listening to the spirit, church, be empowered, be free. You have what you need to go in the spirit. Later today, we're having a, a gospel conversations training, trying to do both of these things together. To say, look, if you've never even thought about how to share the story about Jesus with somebody else, um, or if you've thought about how to say it, but you're just not really good in conversation with others, right? But that's, that's part of what this training is for to help us with. But it's also to say, well, you know, man, I've been feeling like there's somebody over here I would like to go tell about Jesus, and I just don't even know how to do that. Like The, the training piece is trying to hopefully speak to both of these that we're doing. 
and I would encourage you guys, pray for me, uh, because we're, we're looking at how do we do not some more exactly of these things, but just build some specific intentional training times throughout the year in the life of the church. So we're, we may have some more information on that in the coming weeks. But guys, this is, this is what the ministry of Jesus looks like. He knows and he trusts who God is. And in doing that, he goes to others to bring them life. Even as he's walking into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, knowing he's going to the cross, right? Knowing he's, he's walking into the lion's den, he's facing certain death. He knows who God is. He knows what God has set before him to do. He's trusting it. And in doing so, church, he brings us life. So as we are here and gathered today, let's pray as we close. We say, O supreme moving cause, may I always be subordinate to thee, be dependent upon thee. Be found in the path where thou dost walk and where thy spirit moves. May I take heed of estrangement from thee, of becoming insensible to thy love. Thou dost not move men like stones, but thou dost endue them with life. Not to enable them to move without thee, but in submission to thee, the first mover. Lord, I am astonished at the difference between my receivings and my deservings. Between the state that I am in now and my past gracelessness. Who made me to differ but thee? For I was no more ready to receive Christ than were others. I could have not begun to love thee if thou hast not loved me first and I would not have been willing unless thou has made me so oh that such a crown should fit the head of a sinner oh that such a high advancement could be given to an unfruitful person oh that such joy exists father for so vile a rebel infinite wisdom cast the design of salvation into the mold of purchase and freedom in Christ let wrath deserved be written on the door of hell, but the free gift of grace on the gate of heaven. Grant me to attain this haven and be done with sailing. Lord, be done with, as the scriptures say, just being buffeted around by everything. May the gales of thy mercy blow me safely into harbor. Let thy love draw me near to thyself. Wean me from sin, mortify me to this world, and make me ready for my departure hence. Secure me by thy grace as I sail across the stormy sea.